If you guys wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to the book of Ruth, uh, it's in the Old Testament, and uh, we're going to be wrapping this up. We'll pick it up at about verse 13. I'll read, I'll pray, we'll get to work. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. Now, up until this point, uh, Ruth has gone through severe tragedy, loss. Uh, She, too, was a widow. Uh, She was not just simply a widow, but she was a widow who had no children. So she was not just simply a widow who had no children, but she was also what was called a Moabite, meaning she was non-Jewish. She was living in a uniquely Jewish community uh, and being a non-Jew. She she was the minority. Uh, She was an immigrant minority. She was a uh, a widowed, um, infertile immigrant minority living in this particular area. And so everything was going wrong for her and her mother-in-law. And yet the story of Ruth's life was that God had not only redeemed, brought about the process of redemption, meaning to buy her back or to bring about some form of help for her, but ultimately God was now in the process of restoration with, uh, with Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. So that's what was going on. Part of that restoration process involved redemption. She was redeemed by this guy by the name of Boaz. They fell in love. They got married. And that's what you're reading right here. It says, and, she, and he went into her, and the Lord had given her conception. And she bore a son. Then the Lord who had not... Uh, uh, Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of your life and a nourisher of your old age, and your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, who has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and took her and became his nurse, and the women of the neighborhood came, uh, came and gave him a name, saying, The son has been born to Naomi." And they called his name Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So kind of a crazy scenario. Uh, Grandma has baby sitting on her lap. All the old ladies in the neighborhood come in and say, we want to name him. So that's what they do. They just kind of take it upon themselves and name the child, which is kind of a crazy thing. Can you imagine having a baby? All of a sudden, all the ladies in the next stalls over from you, all the ladies down the hall, they're at Cerevista Hospital, come walking down. They're like, we want to name your kid. What do you want to name him? I want to name your kid Obed. So that's what happens. And uh, we're told that he becomes the father of Jesse, who in turn becomes the father of the great King David. Now there are generations, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, so what it's going to do now, it's going to go back several generations, and it's going to give you typically, or for the most part, uh, what would be equivalent to the Jewish uh, white pages. And that's one of the reasons why most of you, if none of you ever read genealogies, because there are a bunch of names of people you have no idea and they live in a bunch of places that you have no idea where they're at, and nobody reads phone books. And that's what we're doing right now is we're reading a phone book. Verse 18 says, And these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So the story of the book of Ruth wants us to know It starts out in tragedy, starts out in hardship, starts out with death, ends with birth. Starts out with loss, ends with insurmountable blessing, restoration. Starts out with famine, ends with food. Starts out with loss of family, ends in a plethora of family line. Ends in a legacy of family line, leading ultimately to the most historical figure throughout all Israel, King David. 
fact, if you go to Israel today, you will see no shortage of gas stations named King David or hotels named King David or any, everything is named King David because David is so important in the life of Israel. And what you just saw in this little lineage here was God actually not just giving a little gift of a child, but the child that was being given to this lady Ruth, who had lost everything, was going to restore everything to her, and then some, by giving her in her lineage the greatest of all kings in all of the people of Israel's history, King David. But the story doesn't stop there. Because we know in the rest of the Bible that we also see that through the lineage of King David is going to come the even greater king, King Jesus. So that's where the story is going, and this is all part of the restoration. So um, I want to pray right now, and then we'll get to work. So God, we ask you right now that you would help us. We need wisdom. We need guidance. We need counsel. And Lord, most of all, we need humility. We need to be able to humble ourselves before you, God, because we're arrogant. We oftentimes assume too much, and yet we know too little. And so, Father, we ask you right now that you would help us to lay aside any of our preconceived ideas or notions that we have of you, that you would allow us to humble ourselves before your mighty hand, that you're a good God, you're a big God, and God, you span the width of history, and that we approach you knowing that you're a God that loves us and loves to welcome us. And so we just give you this time right now, and we pray that you'd be glorified in our moments we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. What I want to do is I want to basically jump in. I want to talk about the whole Bible, for the most part, spans this whole history. And I'm going to try to break it down for you guys in four specific ways. There's this mega theme, if you want, meta narrative that kind of goes all the way through the entire storyline of the Bible. Basically breaks down like this. The next slide will kind of show this to you. And it can be broken down in these four areas. It starts with creation, that everything involves creation. God moves God initiates, God starts, that's where we see creation. Second, we see from creation, it goes on into the fall. Mankind had basically sinned against God. What we see in the garden, first two chapters, everything goes great, it's paradise. Uh, Everybody's having a good time. There's this rhythmic uh, reality within nature. People are enjoying God, people are enjoying creation. Lions Lions are laying down with lambs. It's beautiful. It's everything that God had intended for this rhythmic, beautiful creation to be all about. But what had happened was rather than obeying God, loving God, honoring God, serving God, trusting God, Adam and Eve chose rather than to do all that to disobey God. And thereby disobeying God actually led to this fracture, this breaking, this shattering. Everything broke. And since then, consequently, everything breaks because of this sense of sin. Either sin that we commit or sin that's committed against us. We live in a fractured, broken world. And the Bible's description of this is the fall. And yet, thirdly, what we see is that God intervenes. God, from the very beginning, has always had a plan. And immediately following the fall in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, you have kind of this, what's called the proto-evangelion. In other words, it's this idea, this prototype of the evangelical, of the gospel. Proto-evangelion means this foreshadowing, this type, this prototype of the gospel even before the gospel ever was announced. And what you see in Genesis chapter 3 was that immediately following mankind's entrance into sin and fallenness and rebellion, God immediately steps in and says, but here's what's going to happen. 
uh, a woman's going to give birth to a child. A seed will be given to the woman, and that seed will ultimately crush the head of the dragon. That's caused all this pain, caused all this devastation. In other words, God identifies the fact that even though in the midst of creation, even though fall has happened, God basically says there's going to be a rescue. The rescue will involve a redemption. God will pay the purchase price. God will pay the ultimate price in order to buy back that which has been lost. That's the picture. But then finally, what ends up happening is throughout the Bible, it doesn't end at redemption. For a lot of evangelicals, you would get the idea that the most important ultimate thing within Christianity is Jesus dying on the cross. It is very ultimately, it is the almost, it is the all, let me try to say this again. It is the all-time most important event in history. But it's also a doorway that leads to something that's even more profound. It's identified as the restoration of all things. That God will restore all things. Why do we know that? Because Jesus died on the cross, but the ultimate event was after the cross, he rose again from the dead. Which was the firstborn of all creation, what Paul's going to tell us. In other words, what God was doing when Jesus rose again from the dead, he was giving us a prototype of what everything is in all creation is going to end up happening. That God will restore and redeem and renew all things. It's a renewal. In other words, it's the idea that once all things were new at one point, but it implies a fall. But the renewal means that God will actually reintroduce something, renew something, restore something. Meaning there was once something that was this, We've fallen from this, but then God will actually restore it back. In fact, even better than what it was before. That's what is happening in history. That's what's happening in the Bible. You need to know this. that The Bible is actually a living book. It's going somewhere. It's an ongoing storyline. It's not finished yet. Even though the work of redemption, like Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, is complete. It's done. But the work of renewal, the, re, the work of restoration is an ongoing process that's happened at the beginning of the resurrection. It's continuing to happen throughout history currently. And one day will climax when Jesus will come again and restore all things instantaneously. Sometimes Christians think, well, since Jesus is going to come and do that one day in the future, therefore we don't need to do anything. We'll just wait. We'll hang out. We'll have a prayer meeting. That's nice, but that's not the work of what the Bible calls us to. The Bible actually calls us to works of restoration. It's what the Bible describes in the New Testament as good works. They're good works because they fall in line within the character of God. And God's good. And everything God does is good. Therefore, God's works are good. Those who do works like God, after the order of being redeemed, Therefore, do good works. I'll give you an example. Every time you forgive somebody that's hurt you deeply, you are actually engaged in the works of restoration. Every time you reconcile to an enemy, you are actually engaged in the works of restoration. Jesus would put it this way. Every time you give a cup of cold water in my name, you're actually involved in the works of restoration. Every time you help somebody, serve somebody, love somebody, speak truth, you're actually engaged in the works of restoration. Does that make sense? And it will ultimately climax 
in this wonderful work that God will establish when Jesus comes back again. But until then, we are actually living from the life that God has called us into. We're living that life now through the power of the Holy Spirit, doing these things out of a renewed, regenerated, redeemed heart that actually loves the things of God instead of being rebellious towards the things of God. That was part of the whole action of the fall. So I just want you to get a picture of that because that's the ultimate theme of the Bible. And what you'll find is that you'll see the same theme up here throughout other smaller parts of the Bible, meaning other sub-stories, subplots throughout the Bible. The Bible is full of other stories. There's 66, in the entire Bi- 66 books in the entire Bible. But this is the one main overarching story throughout the entire Bible. You'll see it all throughout. The creation, the fall, the rescue or redemption, and then ultimately the restoration. That's what God's doing. That's where this uh, book is going. This is one of the things we love about the book of Ruth is that's what we see going on here. So with that being said, what I want to begin to do now is I want to talk about at least five, we'll see how far we go, five ways in which this book of Ruth teaches us about restoration. First of all, the book of Ruth actually teaches us that restoration follows redemption. First three chapters of the book of Ruth talk about sin and pain and the consequences of sin and pain. Death, we see death. Death is the result of sin. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. In other words, death is not a natural thing that we need to somehow come to grips with and just accept. Death is not natural. It's not our friend. It's not something that we embrace. It's not something that we just try to figure out a way to just accept it. It is not to be ever reconciled with. It is our enemy. But the reality is the reason why it's our enemy, the reason why it literally affects us is sin is because of rebellion. Rebellion, sin against God has literally led to death in this life. And so what the Bible is going to tell us is that we need somehow some way to be restored or redeemed from this plague of death. The Bible describes sin as like a cancer. It's like a cancer that we have. We can't get rid of. It's, it's lethal. We will die from it unless something rescues us from it. And the reality is, is that all of us will die. The fact of the matter that one out of one people will die you know, is, is a constant reminder of the fact that we live in a world that's constantly riddled with sin. We can't get out of it. We don't know how to get out of it. But the point of the matter is, is that what, ends up, what we need is we need to be redeemed. And in the book of Ruth, we see that the first three chapters is really laying the groundwork or the foundational work that Ruth needed to be redeemed. She was hopeless. She was a foreigner. She was an outcast. She was a woman. Again, as a woman in a male-dominated culture or society, she had no rights. She had no abilities. There was no way by which she can help herself. She needed to be rescued. She needed to be redeemed. She needed somebody to intervene and help her and take care of her. And that's what we see, is that Boaz comes in. Boaz is a man of means. Boaz is a man who loves God. Boaz is a man who's willing to pay the price. For anybody who was to be a redeemer, there was a massive price that the redeemer had to pay. And in this case, Boaz had to pay a massive price. Not only a price of money, but a price of time. I mean, Boaz, you know, married her. Boaz also had to purchase a piece of property that belonged to Naomi, uh, Ruth's mother-in-law. And so there was a big, massive chunk of money and time and energy that Boaz had to pay out in order to redeem Ruth. But he was willing to do it because he loved her. In the same way, 
we recognize in this world, this is the theme of the Bible, is that we have fallen prey into sin. We, like Ruth, have lost everything. We, like Ruth, are foreigners. We, like Ruth, have lost all privilege. We have no rights, in a sense, before God because we can claim, we can make demands from God, but God is under no obligation whatsoever to respond to us. We've sinned against God. C.S. Lewis would describe what we did to God is basically on par with treason. Like, like what we need is rescue. Like what we need, because at the end of the day, we aren't just casual people walking through life, stumbling in the sin. C.S. Lewis says, in essence, we are like people who pick up a sword and claim to fight with God. We're treasonous people that have stood our ground against God. That makes us enemies with God. What we need is we need to have this cancer, this plague that's inside of us called sin dealt with and cleansed. And so what God did, because he loves us, he created a way whereby God can actually crush and destroy sin without destroying us. That's what the cross is all about. What Jesus did for us on the cross was redemption. He paid the price. That's why I said earlier, on the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished. In the Greek, it literally means paid in full. The whole price, the purchase price of redemption was paid in full. Jesus didn't pay with money, silver, or gold. Jesus paid with his precious blood, is what the Bible tells us. That was the price that Jesus paid. Was it costly? Yes, he paid with his own life. He paid for us to redeem us ultimately to bring about restoration. Now, what I want to really point out very quickly is that oftentimes, you know, in modern evangelical circles, there's a little bit of a confusion between redemption and restoration. So sometimes people might talk about restoration, but in reality they're talking about redemption. Sometimes people might talk about redemption, but in reality they're talking about restoration. Here's what I mean. Even though they're unique and they're distinct, they're congruent. They're connected with each other. In other words, you can't have restoration, true restoration, without first of all having redemption. Meaning you first have to have the cancer taken care of or canceled out before you can have full restoration. Let me give you an example. If you were to look at the life of Jesus, you can summarize it like this in three different ways. Um, since most of you guys woke up this morning and you're like, you know, I sure hope the pastor uses charts and graphs. Well, God answered your prayers because here we go. We have a nice little chart and a graph that I made for you guys. So I want to break this down into three different ways. The first is which, of which is incarnation. Jesus came into the world, all right? Jesus came into the world uh, and, and lived as a human being. The second thing that we see that was, was that Jesus died, the crucifixion. Third thing, after the crucifixion, Jesus rose again from the dead. We call this the resurrection. If you want, if you like to alliterate type things, you can look at it this way. This was the ministry of Jesus' life from cradle to cross to crown. Uh, the cradle involves his incarnation. Jesus came in the world. The cross involves his redemptive work. Jesus paid a price for our sin. And then finally, the resurrection is this prototype of this life that's to come. Beginning now. Not one day, 3,000 years from now, but beginning right now. We are living in this life of newness where Jesus has already begun his buyback plan, right? to allow us to live, to be kind of like outposts of what the Christian world will ultimately be like. So this is why the work of Christian work is important, to love people, to serve people, to demonstrate kindness and forgiveness and these types of things. Now, typically what happens in the church 
is a lot of times the different types of squabbles and arguments and uh, territorial battles that oftentimes arise in the church will oftentimes arise over one of three areas. I'll break them down for you. Is that at least the way I've kind of identified it or seen it. They usually tend to focus in on one of the primary areas of Jesus' life and they neglect the other two. I'll give you an example. There are those that look at the fact that Jesus incarnated himself. He was humble. He was a servant. He came to people, laid his life down for many. He was kind. He did a lot of good works of service. And and he was just humble. He was kind of a pacifist. He wasn't picking up swords and fighting. So there are those within Christian circles that would look at this and say, what Christians need to do, the most important things that Christians need to do is we need to be pacifists, we need to be kind, we need to be servants, we need to help people, we need to do everything that we can just to be kind, love, forgive, all these other types of things. Because Jesus incarnated himself, therefore we must incarnate, incarnate ourselves amongst a bunch of other people. Now, oftentimes, the next group of people oftentimes focus on the redemptive works of Jesus Christ. And this is where I would typically identify fundamentalists. People that would identify themselves as being fundamentalist, Bible-believing Christians would typically identify themselves with the second part, by which I would say, that's us, that's me, that's our camp, by the way. I think we would look at it and say we'd highly elevate and emphasize the fact that Jesus died on the cross. Why is this important? Because what this basically does is it emphasizes the need for personal forgiveness, for redemption. It's very important. Say Campus Crusade is a good example of this, emphasizing the need for personal forgiveness of sin. Very important, all right? Um, but oftentimes what can happen, and I'll, I'll get to this in a second. Um, the third one is this, is resurrection. And this is a group of people that oftentimes will focus on the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. After rising again from the dead, he came back, and therefore newness of life is going on. All things are being made new, and therefore we should be about restoring society, restoring culture, being about works of justice, helping people that are caught in slave trades, giving cups of cold water to those people that are going through hard times, doing whatever we can to be about social reform, social change, social transformation. So typically what happens is you have Christians that either that typically will focus in on one of these particular areas of Jesus' life to the neglect of the others, and they fight with each other. So fundamentalists will focus on saying the most important thing that always needs to be preached is personal salvation. Oftentimes what can happen in those camps is there's not a lot of social activity going on. There's not a lot of care or concern that can oftentimes be going on for helping out the poor, serving those that are less fortunate, taking care of the widow, and those that are struggling. Others within camps that would say focus on the resurrected aspect of Jesus, the restorative aspect of Jesus, would look at those who would say, preach personal redemption, personal forgiveness, and say, we don't need to focus that much on the cross. It's not that important anyhow. Doctrine's not essential. It just divides people. Let's just be about works of social activity. And here's what I would say. It's kind of like when you're a child and you get a brand new toy. There's a tendency to put your other toys aside and focus on this one new toy. But what we're talking about here, these aren't toys. These aren't just simple items that can be neglected. All three of them are absolutely essential to balance within the Christian life. Paul the Apostle throughout the entire New Testament, throughout the entire corpus of the New Testament, points out all three of these as being absolutely essential. That yes, Jesus incarnated himself. Therefore, we want to learn how to incarnate ourselves and be servants amongst other people. 
Secondly, Jesus cared about redemption. His death on the cross was for the forgiveness of people's sins. So just like fundamentalists preach, it is absolutely essential to preach forgiveness of sins. And because Jesus rose again from the dead, and he rose back from the dead in a body, that means that God actually cares about physical needs. Yes, God cares about people that are hungry. Yes, God cares about little girls that are being sold off into the slave trade. And God cares about these people. God cares about these things. And so therefore, all three of these things are essential to a healthy, proper balance. Does that make sense? It's all part of this whole concept of what God is doing in the world. And it all reflects upon the life of Jesus. So we've got to be careful that we don't neglect one or two just simply to emphasize one of them to the neglect of the others. So what we begin to see now is that we see is that if all we simply do is focus on restoration without identifying it properly placed in redemption, meaning having sins washed and cleansed and forgiven or the cancer removed, then what you're actually doing is you're not solving the problem. I was watching a program on Netflix the other day. Um, it was called Future by Designs by this guy. Uh, his name is Jacques Fresco, all right? Uh, he was like this guy in the 50s. Um, I asked for service and nobody, nobody knew who I was talking about. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Anybody? Anybody hear this guy? Okay, one guy. Anybody? George, you got to know who this guy is. He's a designer, architect. You don't know. I'm really disappointed right now. Anyways, see me after. Anyways, um, okay, the point of the matter is this. This guy named Jacques Fresco. This guy, he was like this, this, this mastermind a designer, and he created some just crazy things that were way beyond their time, all right? And in this video he was talking about, he says, you know, I think that if we created, I mean, he's talking about building cities on the ocean, like big monster cities, kind of like what they're doing a little bit in Dubai and all that, but like out in the open ocean, like crazy stuff. And anyways, um, he basically points out, he's like, if we can create and sculpt the whole culture, whole civilization, what we would end up actually doing is be able, be able to create an environment where there's no need for people to steal from each other. Because everybody's got everything they need. There's no need for people to murder, no need for people to do these bad things. In other words, in some way, what he's actually proposing is that even though you have a lot of great architectural ideas, or a lot of great plans and concepts, that you can try to go about some sense of restoration, but unless, first of all, you deal with redemption, being redeemed. Restoration, in that sense, separate or divorce from redemption, only leads or sets the path for a renewed sense of death and decay. As soon as the new power brokers move in and start taking over control. It's always that way. Like we can't build a utopian world unless somehow the plague, the cancer of sin is dealt with. This is why restoration has to be built upon this concept of redemption. And this is what we see throughout the book of Ruth. Is that first there was a redemption and then restoration. The whole book would, be, would take on an entirely negative tone if Ruth and Boaz are like, you know what, let's not get married, let's just shack up and have kids. Like, that'd be a weird ending of the book. Like, they had, they lived up with each other, they moved in, they had a couple babies, and they lived happily ever after, all right, as, as partners. Like, that would be a weird way to end the book. But that's not what happened. Boaz 
pays this massive price to redeem Ruth because he loves her, engages her in marriage, ends up having a child through her, and this child becomes God's means of restoring and redeeming all the world. So restoration has to be built upon redemption. The second thing that I notice is that restoration changes us personally. One of the things that you'll notice throughout this whole book is that Ruth is always identified as Ruth the Moabitess. Several times it identifies her as this. Uh, Ruth chapter 1 verse 22, chapter 2 verse 6, chapter 2 verse 21. Ruth the Moabitess or Ruth the foreigner. It's always identifying her as this. But in Ruth chapter 4 verse uh, 13, what we just read here, listen to what it says again. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Her whole entire identity has changed. Everything about her life changes. She's no longer a foreigner. She's no longer an outcast. She's no longer somebody that people just walk by and just look down upon. She now has an identity. She has a name. She belongs to somebody. This is what the gospel is. Ruth couldn't buy this. Ruth couldn't make this happen. But God and grace worked through Boaz to redeem her. This redemption led to this restoration which actually gave her a name. What the gospel is all about. I can remember a time before I was even a Christian, like just thinking about Christians and thinking about other people. I remember I was like 15 years old. There's a girl in my class. She was a Christian. She had, you know, all sorts of Jesus junk all over her folders and stuff. I'm like, she's a freak. Like literally, I think she even had a bumper sticker that said like Jesus freak. I'm like, look at she's even self-proclaiming herself as a freak. She is a classified freak. Like but a Jesus one. And, and the reality is, is that I, I just looked at Christians. I thought they're kind of weird. I mean, I grew up in the Catholic church. I knew about God. I was never an atheist, never an agnostic. I always believed in God. I never questioned it, never challenged it, never even thought about questioning it. But I didn't know God. I didn't have a relationship with God. And I, don't even, I can't even sit there and say it was because of something wrong with you know, the church I grew up in. I can't even say that. It was just the fact that I was blind. I didn't get it. I didn't see it. I didn't understand it. But what had happened at some point between, I don't know, the summer of my 15th year and 16, somewhere around there, God just saved me. I mean, I don't even remember the date. The only thing that is like, I can think of, somebody probably heard me tell the story, it's like I was sitting in our, I don't know, 1984 Volkswagen bus in our Catholic church parking lot talking with my stepmom about God. And she said something that just triggered a thought in my mind. I remember like repeating it back to her and saying, now you mean to tell me that, that God actually wants to wash me and cleanse me and forgive me of everything, all my sin, everything? She's like, yeah, that's, that's what Jesus does. It's somewhere right around there. I don't even know exactly where it was, when it was. That just made sense to me. I was changed in an instant. What, what to me, I could repeat back to you. I can speak to you. I can tell you. Like, yeah, God is, God is real. God exists. God exists in three unique persons, the Trinity. Yes, Jesus came, died, suffered, yada, yada, yada. I can tell you all that, but none of it actually was here. It's all up here. It was just never here. In, in that Volkswagen van again, somehow God migrated from up here into here. My, I was changed. That's, that's what happened with Ruth. In an instant, she went from being Ruth the foreigner, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the outcast, 
to being Ruth the wife. Guys, that's what Christianity is. Is that God takes you. He doesn't define you. He doesn't look at you. He doesn't identify you with your sin. That's what this world does. This is why sin is bad. We have, oftentimes, we build our identity around what we've done or how bad we've been or what's been done to us. But the gospel frees us from that. It says you don't need to be identified according to that anymore. You don't need to be that anymore. You don't need to live according to that stigma anymore. That, that, that no longer has control or power or any authority over you anymore because you have been set free by a greater master. Yeah, alcoholism, great, powerful master. Being raped, big, powerful master. Being sexually, you know, just promiscuous. Big, powerful master over your life. Being a drug addict, big, powerful master over your life. But what happens is the gospel comes in and a more powerful master comes in, sets you free, and now gives you his identity. That's why the gospel is so great. Some of you need to hear this. Some of you need to believe this because some of you don't. Some of you are Christians and you've been set free by the cross. You've been washed. Everything that Jesus did for you has already been done, but for some reason you keep going back to this old identity. Can you imagine if Ruth kept going back saying, I'm undeserving, I'm just Ruth the Moabite. No, you're Ruth, my wife. Guys, God's restorative acts gives us a brand new name creates for us an identity that's in his likeness. That's what the gospel does. The third thing I want you to notice is that restoration really is the result of, of God's divine intervention. Um, verse 13, it goes on, it says, and she, uh, and he went into her, that's Boaz going into Ruth, and obviously this is a, an Old Testament metaphor for them having sex, and then it goes on, it says, and the Lord gave her conception. This is, this is beautiful. This was on their wedding night. This was a gift from God to the both of them. God gave them the gift of each other's bodies. It was beautiful. And, and this, is, this was God's unique gift to them. That We're told that, that Ruth actually conceived. And we're, we're given the hint as to who caused the conception. Now remember, Ruth had been married for 10 years. 10 years, never had a baby. She was damaged goods in the eyes of everybody. Who'd want a woman that can't have a child in a uniquely male-dominated culture that only wants sons. Like, if, if, if you are a woman living in a culture and the stigma got out that you are inconceivable, meaning you couldn't have babies, no one would want you. You're worthless. You're absolutely worth, worthless in that type of a culture. But God demonstrates unbelievable grace to say, Ruth, you're valuable to me. And God was actually working behind the scenes in this woman who was inconceivable at one point to literally create in her the bloodline all the way to the Messiah. God was at work doing a miracle. And she gives birth. She has a child. It's this unbelievable picture of God's grace that God intervened. God did this work. There's at least two things that I notice about this, is that God always works, God restores through these works, through these miracles. That's how God works. He just, he shows up, he does these things. But you know, one of the things we also notice in the book of Ruth is that one of the ways in which God restores is oftentimes through the works of his redeemed ones. You know that? 
I said this earlier, the works of God, the good works of God. Christians who are redeemed do good works. We don't do good works to get God's favor. That's not Christianity. But Christians who are redeemed do good works. Why? Because we have a new heart. Our heart's been changed. We want to do things that glorify God. We want to do things that are like signposts pointing to God. And when we do things, even giving a cup of cold water in God's name, we're like, that points to God. I want people to see God. Forgiveness points to God. I want to be a forgiver. I want to be somebody that reconciles because all that reconciliation and all that forgiveness and all that generosity, all that points to God because my God is generous, so I want to give. My God is a redeemer, and I, I want to be somebody that's about that work. My God is a reconciler, so I want to be about works of reconciliation. When we see who God is and what God is like, we want to be about those works, and so what happens is that God actually uses the works of God's redeemed people to demonstrate his kindness in his work throughout the world. And oftentimes God uses us as these means of divine intervention. But it's important to note that all restorative acts of God now, okay, everything that God does in our lives, and I want to be sure to, 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 to kind of clearly identify this, because sometimes this message can be very easily twisted to the point where like, you know, God wants to restore everything in your life right now. So if you had a hard life, just trust God and everything will be restored right now. You get a bigger house, get a better spouse, uh, you'll lose weight, and you'll win the lottery. And everything will be fine. Your life will ultimately be better. And the reality is, is that may not be true. Because you might be reconciled to God. You may be redeemed. And the restoration that you might get might be at the hand of somebody chopping your head off, dying, and finding your presence consumed by God's. Meaning you die, just like a lot of martyrs died. And you'll be fully restored then. But let me say this. There are times when God actually restores our lives with possessions, treasures, goods, now. Sometimes even health, now. It's important to understand why God does that. Every bit of restorative act or grace that God gives to us currently or now is always intended to be, if I can put it this way, an appetizer of the buffet to come. Let me give you an example. Even healing. Sometimes some Christians get so into healing. It's all about healing. God wants to heal. And I believe God wants to heal, and I believe God can heal. I've seen God heal. I've watched it. I've prayed for people, and I've seen them healed. I know God can do that. But do you know that everybody that's been healed dies again? Everybody. Lazarus, raised from the dead. That's awesome. Like, a few days later, dude dies again. Like, did God fail? Like, or, or what happened? No, the whole point of Lazarus' rising again from the dead was not to be this ultimate thing like, oh, let's celebrate forever talking about the fact that Lazarus said, well, wait a minute, he died again. <laughs> Bummer. Like, like, that's not good. Like, raised again, died again. What's, this isn't right, right? So every act of restoration that God does now, currently, in this life, financial, property, spouses, health, whatever, is always intended to be an appetizer of the restoration that's to come. Every time. Every time. So don't get stuck up hanging out at the appetizer line when God's saying, move it along, keep going, there's a buffet in the future that you will absolutely, it's to die for. Like, 
not in the die sense, but in the living sense. But it's unbelievable. Don't stop. Don't get hung up at the appetizer spot because I'm still working, still moving. And every restorative act I, you see now, you get to see now, is always intended to point forward to this final restoration when God will do all these things. In one moment, one time when Jesus comes back again. The fourth thing I want to point out is that restore, restoration is ultimately through a child. And we see that in the story here. I want to read you Matthew chapter 1. So why don't you guys turn there real quick. I'm going to read this real fast. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew uh, starts out his little account. And he's wanting to tie Jesus to a larger history, larger legacy. And here's what he starts out by saying in Matthew chapter 1. He says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So pause right there. He just simply points out, he says, the beginning of all this, it's about Jesus. It's a genealogy about Jesus and the lineage that led up to Jesus. And here's what he's going to say. In fact, some of these verses you'll notice are almost identical to the very last few verses in the book of Ruth. In fact, maybe, perhaps Matthew borrowed actual language directly straight from the book of Ruth and says, that fits, that leads to David. We know that David ultimately led to Jesus. So it's almost like he borrows the exact same text or language. And here's what he says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he points out the two lineages from Abraham, then ultimately through King David. And here's what he points out in verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, in about verse 6 of chapter 1 in the book of Matthew. But the point of the matter that I want to emphasize is that what Matthew's saying is that all of this was a work of God leading all the way to Jesus, the Redeemer, the King. That God's means of restoration was ultimately through a child. We even see that in the book of Ruth, that this child comes, and here's Naomi, this old lady. She's lost everything. She's lost her husband. She has no living legacy, no living children. Ruth has a baby. Ruth brings this baby to Naomi and basically gives it to Naomi and says, Naomi, this belongs to you. We've been looking at this over the past few weeks. I don't have a lot of time to unpack that for you. But this baby, actually, the firstborn child of Ruth, is going to end up going back to Naomi. This is going to be Naomi's child now. And so literally the women who see Naomi with this child, they, they point out, they said, this is God's restorative act. God is restoring the youth of Naomi. How? Through a child. But again, this is just simply an echo of what's to come, that God will ultimately restore all things through a child, through Jesus, God's child. The fifth thing that I noticed, and i wrap it up here, is that restoration is ultimately about joy, peace, and comfort in God. That's what it's about. Do you know that God created this world in rhythmic beauty to find joy in God? And that God gave us a whole creation to enjoy it. This is an amazing thing is that, I don't know where this comes from, but sometimes Christians, you know, have this tendency to want to over-spiritualize everything. They're like, well, the true spiritual Christians will just love God and not love anything else. That's not even biblical. Like, God created this world for us to love. Does that mean I can't love my wife? Does that mean I can't look at my daughters and just absolutely be enamored by them and love them? Like, if my child is born, like, should I only allow a certain level of excitement and be like, oh, i got to be spiritual. I can't be too overly excited. Like, i got to love Jesus, not the fact that I have a birth of a child. Like, that's unnatural. God created us to enjoy him and his good creation. But with the fall came a reversal of order. Rather than loving God first, we loved God's gifts first. Paul would put it this way in Romans chapter 1. We fell in love with creation 
rather than or more than the creator. We fell. We sinned. We still do that to this day. And what we need is we need to be rescued. We need to be redeemed. That's what God provides. But then ultimately, because of our sin, our sin doesn't lead us to happiness. Ah, sin's pleasurable, definitely. The Bible even admits that. It's pleasurable for a season, though. You know that? The sin or the pleasure that sin gives you is only a seasonal pleasure. It doesn't last forever. It doesn't sustain you. You can't, you know, have sin and enjoy it and then expect that same sin to keep you going for six weeks from then. You can't. Or if you engage in some sort of, you know, sinful moment and then expect or find yourself going through a great tragedy of loss, that sin is not going to sustain you. It can't keep you going. It can't keep your heart propped up and sustained. It can't. The pleasure that it offers is only temporary. Religion doesn't satisfy either. What I mean by that is you trying to just make yourself right with God by going to church, by doing the right thing, reading your Bible, saying your prayers, doing all the right religious stuff, that doesn't satisfy you either because that's your attempt through moral perfectionism to make yourself right with God. The opposite is trying to exclude God and to make themselves happy or satisfied by enjoying all of creation. They're both errors. They both lead away from God. We both need to be rescued from both of those things. And restoration is about God restoring joy and peace. And I want to read a verse and finish up right here. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And just as I finish, I want you to listen to this verse and listen to what the prophet Isaiah had to say several hundred years ago about this. Because Isaiah actually prophesied about a coming day when God would one day send his servant and his servant, his son, we now know, would come and he would redeem he would pay the price, the purchase price, to redeem all things. But then that would set in motion a process of restoration, of restoring that which was broken, putting place, putting back into place that which is out of place, putting back together shattered lives, shattered pieces that were once destroyed and broken. That's what God set in place. And again, it all began simply from the cross and yet goes out cosmically throughout the whole earth God is in a process right now of restoring all things and he's calling people to come to him, to trust in him, to love him to respond to him it's what the Bible describes as repentance to turn from our evil ways to turn from our religious ways to turn to God, to love God to ask God to wash us, to cleanse us he's already paid the redemption price all we gotta do is trust that and then God begins to do the work of restoration, changing us, giving us a new heart. Here's what Isaiah had to say. He says, out of the anguish of his soul, it's Jesus, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, for he will bear their iniquities. Because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressions, he bore the sin of many. Therefore, he makes intercession for the transgressors. In chapter 54, verse 1, comes the restoration. Then he says, single barren one, you have not been able to bear. Break forth into loud singing. Cry aloud, you have not been in labor. For the children of 
the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says God. Here's what God's saying. He uses a metaphor and he says, a barren woman who is unable to ever have birth, ever have children, who's not even married. So there's no possibility of this woman ever to have children. God says, I know how far my extent of my restoration will go. He says it will even go into the lives of people that are absolutely, clinically unable, incapable of any life. restore because that's what God wants to do in your life do you believe that do you trust that do you know that this is how great our God is that he's able to take barrenness and bring life into it this is one of the reasons why people who are redeemed should be the most passionate should be the most excited should sing loudest of anybody in the entire earth we have something of content to sing about We have a God that not just simply paid an ultimate price, took it upon himself to bring about our redemption. In other words, removing the cancer, crushing the cancer without crushing us. But then bringing about our restoration, restoring our joy, shalom, our peace, being our comfort. How great our God is. We're gonna sing, we're gonna worship. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I encourage you. Ask God to wash you, to cleanse you. Ask Him to forgive you of your sin, forgive you of your rebellion against Him, forgive you of your worship of false gods, placing false things before God. If you're here and you're a Christian, maybe you need to just simply believe and trust the fact. God has not only redeemed you, He's giving you a new name. He's changing you. He's changed you. He's transforming you. You're not what you once were. You're not what you completely are. But He's changing you. For His grace, according to His grace, for your good pleasure, for His praise. We're going to sing, partake of communion. God, just receive our praise. God, help us to sing loudly, joyfully, passionately. We've got something to sing about. God, I pray that we would sing in love, in honor, confess sin, be made right with you. Celebrate the fact that you've come, Jesus, that you're a good God.
praise and thank you for the price that you had paid for us, the price we couldn't pay. Jesus, you did for us what we were powerless to do. And yet you got, God, you did it with, with great joy. You endured the cross, and yet you did it for us out of love and grace and kindness. God, we respond to that in, in love and affection. We say thank you for that. And God, the cross is, is, is everything that we hold dear because it's, God, it was you coming to us that were foreigners and you brought us in. It was you operating on us and, and ridding us of that cancer, that plague, that death that was at work in us. And, and yet, God, you miraculously were able to separate the disease from us <laughs> that we didn't have to become one with that disease sin didn't have to become one with us and God you separated us you set us free you redeemed us and God we thank you as we look forward to the fact that your restoration is at work currently right now in us and yet God we, we also look forward to the day that one day you will come back and fully set it up fully establish it and we will see it certainly as the waters cover the earth God so will the earth be filled with the glory of God is what your word says we look forward to that day but until that day God I pray that we would see that all of us that are redeemed all of us that have been changed that we have we have a vocation we have a call not to just sit and not to just try to figure out what to do with our lives, to bide our time. But God, that we have a vocation and the vocation is linked to your image in us. That we would reflect you, God, so that every work of goodness that we would do, it's not our goodness, it's not our good works, but God, it's you working through us to give cups of cold water to those that are hurting. It's you working through us to help us to make radical sacrifices, to give our lives away. It's you working through us to even take our finances and to be generous and to generously give these things away to those that we see that are in need. It's you working through us to help us to forgive and to relinquish and to reconcile ourselves to people that may be our enemies. Because God, that's what you did to us over and over and over again. So God, may we be about your works of restoration today. So God, send us out of here as missionaries with a task, with a vocation, with a call, even with a vision. So God, help us to figure out what that means in each of our individual lives and as a body to live the gospel here on the Central Coast and beyond. Empower us by your spirit to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.